0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When Rodrigo Duterte was elected president of the Philippines in 2016, he vowed to carry out a war on drugs that he promised would be bloody. His policies have resulted in thousands of extrajudicial killings of drug addicts and petty criminals. And then, because independent news media criticized his tactics, he went after journalists. Ramona S. Diaz has made a documentary called A Thousand Cuts, which profiles one of Duterte's staunchest critics, Maria Reza, the co-founder and CEO of the Filipino news site, Rappler. She was recently convicted of cyber libel and faces a long prison term. The film is opening online today, released by Frontline and PBS, and I'm very pleased to welcome Ramona S. Diaz to our show now. Hello.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's a a really uh, upsetting film, but I mean, that was your intention. Uh, I suspect that most people in this country don't know much about President Duterte and the political issues uh, of the Philippines. What's his background and what has made him so popular?
1: His, okay, President Duterte became president of the Philippines in 2016, and basically he was um, he went from local politics to national politics, which is
0: very rare in the Philippines. So he was he, the mayor of the city of Davao? Yes. I don't, I've never heard of Davao. Is that one of the largest cities in the Philippines?
1: Uh, it's a city down south in Mindanao, um, and it's uh, one of the largest cities in Mindanao. So it's not, it's not a smothering, it's not a sleepy town by any means. It's a, you know, medium-sized town, let's say. Um, But he, but more than that, he was not part of the political elite in the capital, which is Manila. So he was seen as an outsider, even though he had been in politics for a very long time. And I think he just caught the imagination of the people. You know, he he spoke like, they said he spoke like a regular person. He didn't speak like the, the other politicians. But Uh, You know, if you hear it, especially in the film, if you listen to him, he has this language uh, of violence, right? It's a very violent rhetoric. So I guess that's what people responded to in a way, which was different from the other politicians. So it sparked their imagination, because I think they were hungry for— something completely different from same old, same old politicians. And also we had a revolution in 1986 and a lot of the promises of 1986 didn't come to fruition. So, um, people were just tired and, um, he came to, you know, he ran on the drug war, which he related to, um, law and order, right. And people wanted law and order and that's what they wanted. And he sold it and, he won by—not a landslide, because there were five um, candidates. So uh, he won by a majority. Um, and he remains—we uh, don't know how popular he is right now because of COVID, right? There hasn't been a survey recently. And the country has been, on its 20th week, of very strict lockdown, um, because he really his response to COVID has been like his response to the drug war, very— um, it's, it's a police response, right, not a public health response. So he is just like the drug war. He says, if you're not compliant, you're out on the streets, you'll be arrested. Or if you resist, you'll be shot. You know, so it's, it's very it's a very militaristic response to the to the to COVID. Um, yeah. So uh, we don't know. But effective, right eh?
0: But kind of um, effective because the numbers are, are pretty low.
1: The numbers are low, yes. So it's helped, but there is no, um, there is also no testing and tracing, right? So all that is is coming from a lockdown. That's also, of course, um, hurting um, the economy, right? Right. And obviously hitting the poor mostly.
0: Now he's often compared to Trump, Bolsonaro, and Orbán because they're seen as populist leaders with authoritarian tendencies and. Like Trump, he has a history of making sexist remarks, and in the film we see him using a microphone to indicate his virility, but he even goes further he 's encouraged state forces to commit sexually violent acts against women rebels, including shooting them in their genitals yeah i mean that uh, that uh, that wouldn't go over well in most countries
1: ah uh, right we didn 't think it would go over well in the Philippines, but they always you know the next day his um uh his secretaries, cabinet members, his allies say, Well, he didn't really mean that. Yeah, he was uh, joking. He talks, you know. I'm like, I know no one who talks like that, right? So, but they always, you know, they, they always walk it back the next day and and people buy it. Look, this is a guy who also hits the Catholic Church, right? And the Philippines is still very much a Catholic country. No one, no one has ever won before Duterte without the support of the church. But he hits them now. I mean, he insults priests and nuns, and yet he remains um, popular. I mean, up until pre-COVID, right? I always say pre-COVID because there have not been any um, survey since then, Um, which is, it's, it's, um, it's befuddling sometimes. But I think it goes to, how people are so hungry for change, right? And um, and so they see him as the, the guy who's going to change all of it. But he's also midterm, right? We, he's only—you um, run for one six-year term, so he's midterm. He, by his elections are up in 2022. So by next year, he'll be a lame duck. It'll be interesting to see what happens.
0: Well, he could try to— uh change the constitution and and run again. It's been known to happen in the past. In the film, we... we, we,
1: Go um, ahead. No, it's uh, it's something that's being proposed right now. So um, it's interesting that you should bring it up. Yeah. um, Chacha, as they call it in the Philippines, constitutional change, charter change, is very much a part of the conversation.
0: In the film, we see him admitting to killing three people and vowing that if he's elected, he'll kill anyone involved with illegal drugs. So uh, is the drug problem that bad in the Philippines that that was an effective campaign promise?
1: Um, It wasn't. You know, it wasn't if you saw surveys during the like in 2015, right, during um, election season, right before elections happened in 2016, uh, the drugs were not a problem, right? It wasn't the it wasn't one of the top five concerns in the Philippines. Law and order was, right? So he connected that to law and order, um, but he made it seem like the narrative they sold was that uh, the Philippines was close to being a narco state, which is far from that. It wasn't, but people bought it, right? And um, and so when you and people bought it, especially they sold it on social media, right? They really pounded it on social media. And once you say something a lot, it somehow becomes truth, right? So it becomes part of the narrative. And people accepted, yeah, that there is a drug war that you have to fight. And yes, you have to kill people on the streets, right? If they fight. And the, the narrative of the government was that, you know, they they get killed because they fight back, but, uh, you, I mean, a lot of them did not have guns to fight back. So how can they fight back, right? There are, or a lot of them were shot, like, in the back, running away. Um, but that was the narrative, and people bought it, that they are fighting back. You know, it's easy. It's an easy monster, right, drugs and drug dealers and drug users. It's an easy monster to wrap your head around. It's an easy sell, and it's a, uh, it's a quick narrative to put out there that people will believe.
0: There were thousands of murders of drug addicts and small-time criminals. Why uh, kill them? Why not just simply put them in jail?
1: Well, you know, well, because they—they they, first of all, the the, uh, the jails like are overrun, right? So, but they always, yeah, exactly. Well, still, yeah, yeah. Why do build more no jails? There are no more jails, but the, yeah, but why jail them, right? I mean, we're talking about. He promised to go after. Uh, the um, the b- big drug dealers, right? Um, uh, drug, the kingpins. But he hasn't. It's low low level drug users or, or drug dealers, really. And so people have called it, and mostly poor people. Um, so a lots of human, a, a lot of human rights groups have called it the war on the poor, as opposed to a drug war, because mostly poor are getting shot, and we don't, you know, they're the powerless, disempowered once, right? So they don't really, yeah, so uh, it's, the numbers are horrific. They're like, according to government numbers, uh, put it at like 4,000, which Mm. is still in itself such a high number, but the human rights groups um, peg it more at 27,000, between 27,000 and 30,000. That's like close to genocide numbers,
0: uh, you was, know, or who, might be
1: genocide numbers. I don't know, but that's pretty—I mean, think about it. 30,000 extrajudicial killings. It's incredible.
0: Were were certain ethnic groups singled out, or were you just said the poor?
1: It was the poor. And, you know, uh, most of the drug war started in the capital, right? And that's why uh, journalists covered it immediately, because it was in Manila, and it was very— um, it wasn't hidden, you know. Bodies were left in the streets. Oh. Um, the journalists could cover them, and they were. They. I, that's how I want. That's how I started making this film because I saw the photographs, and they were horrific, and I couldn't like avert my gaze. But Ooh. it's now moved to outside to the provinces, so there's less. It's less um, obvious, you know, and journalists can't get out there um, to to cover it as much because it's it's now. Yeah, you know he's been so he's been criticized for the drug war, so he's moved it out of the capital. So it's 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 still happening, but it's not as obvious, I guess.
0: And who was committing these murders? The police vigilantes um, were there. Are certain groups that were given the job.
1: Well, um, police, and they admit to uh, having, you know. Um, Killed some of the drug uh, killers, alleged drug users, because, you know, again, the the narrative of Naglaban, they fought back, so we had to kill. So there are police, but uh, some have also said that they're uh, vigilantes, right, hired by the police to do it. Um, You know, President uh, Duterte had a drug war in Davao as well. And um, so uh, th- his story coming out of Davao was he was a mayor who cleaned up the city. And, and it is true. Davao, when um, uh, Mayor Duterte was—when um, he was mayor of Davao, was very prosperous. It's still a very prosperous town, but on the backs of this really brutal drug war. So he, wh- he, what he did in Davao, he tried to nationalize, right? He, he just made it like national policy, thinking it would work. That it you know it would make the the country more prosperous for some reason, um, but it didn't. You know it went it, it just um, it, it still, the numbers are still rising, but of course that's been overshadowed by other news like uh, well COVID for one, and also he's been consolidating power. Right, he's been shutting down the biggest um, uh, network in the country. Uh, in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, so it's like if Trump shut down, oh, I don't know, um, CNN, um, he did that in the middle of uh, of, of lockdown. Uh, Maria has been convicted. There's an anti-terror law that's now in place. Um, it defines terrorism broadly. Um, so, you know, it's possible that this film, <laughs> if it plays there, might be, you know, <laughs> deemed like um, terrorism, might be seen as... Um, terrorism. Um, And basically it allows, um, it gives power to a small group within the administration to arrest without a warrant and keep you for 24 days. And the definition of terrorism is broad. So anything you post on on social media might be seen as terrorism.
0: Considering the story you tell here, I doubt that it's going to be shown in the Philippines uh, as long as Duterte is in power. I'm speaking on Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM with Ramona S. Diaz about her film, her latest film called A Thousand Cuts. And uh, you mentioned Maria Ressa, uh, that your film really focuses on her. She's become one of Duterte's most outspoken critics. What is her history?
1: Uh, um, Maria has been—she's um, been a journalist for, like, 35 years. So she started with—she started her career with CNN Asia. Well, CNN Philippines, and then she started the CNN Bureau in Jakarta. So for a long time, in the 80s and the 90s, she was the face of CNN Southeast Asia. Um, and then she decided to—she um, left CNN to head— the biggest uh, network in the country, the one that I just talked about, that uh, you know Duterte shut down during pandemic, ABS-CBN. She was head of news of ABS-CBN for uh, six years, I think, and then decided to leave that, and then she formed Rappler, which is an online site. It's the fr- it's the only um, online online publication, purely online in the Philippines. Um, That's- and. Yeah, she does take issue by—and uh, when, when, I say, too, that she's the loudest voice speaking out against Duterte, because to her, she's a journalist, right? It's not in opposition to Duterte. She's just—they're just trying to call out facts and the truth, right, because they're calling out the numbers of the drug war. Um, so um, she, she doesn't see herself as the opposition. She sees herself as a journalist calling out the truth,
0: she was born in the Philippines, but she came to the United States as a child. Does she have dual citizenship?
1: Yes, she does. Yes, she does. So she um she came here as a child at ten years old and right after uh actually she lived in Toms River, New Jersey.
0: Hmm.
1: Um and she right after college, she I think she got a Fulbright uh for the Philippines for Manila. She wanted to find her roots, she says, um, and decided to stay. So she now, does she,
0: have- Now, she's a formidable opponent. Uh, she was named Time Magazine Person of the Year in 2018, and she's won many awards for investigative journalism. But uh, that doesn't seem to have deterred Duterte from going after her. Um, how how popular is Rappler in, in the Philippines? Does it have much of an influence?
1: I think it has more of an influence now, right? Because the more he went after her, um, the more her reputation globally grew, right? So it seems like he goes after her, and then her reputation outside the country grows. But I think also it protects her. Her international reputation does protect her, uh, because he knows that she has a voice outside the country, um, like no one else does. I I think he um, just—the way I see it, it's like he— um, Duterte's—Maria's sort of beyond the comprehension of Duterte. He doesn't understand why she has such a global voice. And in a way, he connects her global influence with um, impinging on the sovereignty of the Philippines. So he connects that a lot, right? So the narrative of she's American, she shouldn't be owning Rappler. Well, no, she is Filipino-American. She can own Rappler. But that is— that, that is the narrative that uh, the administration has pushed, that she is foreign and rappers is foreign-owned, um, but she isn't. But a lot of people believe it, see? well, Once you say it so much, and some people even believe that she's Indonesian because that's the story they came out with, like, two years ago, and some people still believe it, and she's not. She's Filipino-American. She was born in the Philippines. Um, yeah, so, so in the way she's like this anomaly in the country— um, and yet she's, uh, you know, she, she's gained so much prominence just by standing her ground.
0: And uh, it, Grappler has uh, been accused by uh, any number of people of being an, uh, funded by the CIA. Duterte uh, calls it fake news, uh, among other things. Uh, <laughs> we know what that phrase is all about. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh I don't know whether he picked it up from Donald Trump or whether it just simply was something that was part of the Philippine vocabulary as well.
1: Oh, no, no. He picked it up from Donald Trump. I think a few days after Donald Trump called CNN fake news, he called, uh, Duterte called uh, Rappler fake news. Uh, you know, a mere, like, three days later. I mean, he did. He did pick it up from Trump. And mm-hmm. um, and he's, you know, he's uh, he said it very, very many times. He The fact that... He says it at the State of the Nation address, right? He says it very like in like very formal occasions. As it's like it's a it's it almost like becomes policy. Rappler is foreign owned; they're CIA, and, and and then that's connected again to then you know to to an attack on the sovereignty of the country because of course. You know, um, the Philippines has sort of this love-hate relationship with America. I mean, the Philippines was the only Commonwealth America's ever had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we we uh, both find a kinship with America, but yet also, you know, sort of are um, pushed back from America. So it's this push and pull, and he plays on that, definitely.
0: In some ways, similar to our relations with Cuba, where uh, the the United States both played a role in freeing. These countries from Spanish uh, colonialism, and at the same time, uh, had a, a complicated relationship afterward. Uh, well, yes. you also you also profiled Mocha Houston, a Filipina singer, dancer, and model, who's also a political blogger and a supporter of Duterte. Is she what we might call an influencer?
1: Yes, she is. She's one of her, um, yeah, she, she definitely is an influencer. And um, she has five million followers, I think, her, wow. on her blog. And she's also the alleged uh, queen of fake news in the Philippines. And are goes the, after uh, Maria, personally. So it's, it's very interesting, as you see in the film.
0: Are the social media even more important in Filipino politics than they are here? Absolutely. Uh, we tell you. We're talking about mostly uh, Facebook and Twitter, or are there other, are there it, specifically Filipino social media sites?
1: Definitely Facebook. Um, I, what, um, th- there is a percentage. I think it's 100% of people who are on the Internet are on Facebook. So basically, Facebook is our Internet. It's the Philippines Internet, because it comes um, free on your phone, Right. It's so easy to be on it. So it is Facebook more than Twitter, more than Instagram. It's tw- it's Facebook. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, and Facebook has been weaponized. That's where the trolls are, um, and uh, and we're starting to feel it too with the film. The trolls have come after us. And Maria's joke, nah, that's okay. Don't mind the trolls. That means you're being effective, right? They only come after you if you're effective. But um, but yeah, uh, they they've. They've definitely come after Maria since they've been coming after her since 2016. But um, yes, it, it, it's Facebook.
0: Well, she says at one point she was getting 90 hate messages per hour.
1: Yes, and how can you wow. handle that? And I think she did. Um, she did report it to Facebook, and they said, "Well, just um, just handle it, like respond or block and delete." She's like, "How can I block and delete 90 an hour, right?" <laughs> It's like this whack-a-mole game. So, and wh- so, you know, when that happened to her, she thought, you know, it's really not about content because content, like she says, it's a whack-a-mole game. You can't get on top of it. It's a... Crazy battle. So she started looking at um, disinformation and trolls as like a network, a pattern, right? Uh, and she saw how one, and you see this in the film, how one um, account really influences like, as much as, um, like, three million accounts. Basically, they're a combination of Mocha Usun and her followers, and bots and trolls, all following each other. And you can see all the fake accounts, right? And that's how it spreads. How That's how, and, you know, bad news uh, uh, travels faster on the internet. It's more, it's more of a clickbait. It's, it's, you know, it's proven that we share bad news faster than good news. So once you put it out there, it's out there. Even if you take it back, you can never really take it back, right? Because the people who first were affected by it will never see you taking it back, right? It'll always be there in their, you know, they're already affected. Uh, So I think that was why it was so clear to me that Maria um, was an important part of the story of the film I was trying to tell because she... Uh, the clarity of how she explains um, the how the, the spread of disinformation um it, it, it's it's mind-boggling once you really wrap your head around it right because this information has been bandied about but what is it really i mean but when you see it graphically you're like oh my god
0: it's well, she comes across as incredibly brave she said and I'm quoting, for years I've been saying that I feel like Alice falling down the rabbit hole with talking cards saying, off with my head.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and she, um, you know, I followed her for a long time, you know, when I film people, I, fo- I follow yeah. them most yeah, you have history
0: with her. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. The history <laughs> I, that,
0: that might've suggested that she w- wouldn't want you to film her. You, you um, Something happened in the past. <laughs>
1: yes um I actually almost met her in uh 2004 right um uh, my very first film was about Imelda uh the you know former first lady of the Philippines Imelda Marcos um I did that in 04 0304 and um uh, when we were about to release in the Philippines Imelda Marcos sued was try well sued me and my distributors, so I had to fly to the Philippines to defend the film, to really show up in court, right? So I get to Manila, and you know they show me a list of people who want to interview me. And Maria Ressa was on it. And you have to remember, this was like, oh, she was the face of like CNN in Southeast Asia. And I'm like, oh, my God, Maria Ressa was just, uh, to interview me. I was so excited. But then someone said, you know, she doesn't really like your film. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. I said, I don't really want to talk to her then because I was so tired. I'm like, I'm so nervous. You know, I was facing Imelda in court. I just didn't want to litigate the film. So I turned her down. And um. Um, and I got such, uh, oh my God. And, you know, people are like, you don't turn Maria Ressa down. <laughs> I said, well, I need to right now. And then, so 14 years later, I'm in her office asking for permission to film her. And I thought, I should never remember. It's 14 years ago. And my God, she's had many lives since then. And then um, and then she looked at me. She goes, I've always wondered why you turned me down. All <laughs> years ago. And I'm like, in my head, okay, should I deny it? I'm like, you crazy And Of course you won't. I'm like, Oh yeah, Marie, Oh my God, Maria! I was young then. That was my first film, and you know, I've learned so much. And she goes, "No, no, no! It's okay, it's okay." She goes, "Now I guess we'll have <laughs> we'll have a lot of time to talk on, about that film now." <laughs> and to her credit, she still said yes. So there, that's my history. Oh. That I almost met her then.
0: <laughs> well, she can't be upset by the way you've uh, portrayed her in this film. But getting back to Moka Yuzan, uh, oh, yeah. how did she become Duterte's chief social media? A supporter she's a, she was a pop singer and dancer, a very pretty uh, model. Uh, uh, has she been with him even was she with him even before he ran for office for for president?
1: Um, she um, she started supporting him when he was running for president. so in mm. late 2015 2016, she decided that you know and, and she was very popular like she had a lot of followers. she was she founded the mocha girls so pretty much like the uh maybe like the pussycat dolls here that would be the and comparison you,
0: and you can find uh, the, the things that she did with the Mocha girls to support duterte during his run for the presidency on youtube
1: yeah, oh yeah absolutely and they had like they would write special rap songs and she, so she brought her uh popularity to bear on the on the campaign and uh and really really went all out for duterte and you find out why, right? In the film, she has a personal history, and uh, and um, uh, she talks about her father, right, in the film. So you find out why she was very, very supportive of Duterte. And so to pay, you know, to, to for Duterte, it was a debt of gratitude. He was very—they um, uh, they say Duterte is a very, very loyal person. Once you show um, that you are loyal to him, he will give you— the world, right? So he felt a debt of gratitude to Mocha. And once he became president, he appointed her um, as an undersecretary having to do with his social media platforms. So that's how she became um, a politician. You know, that's how she entered politics. And then she ran—and then she left that position and ran for Congress, which um, she lost, which was very surprising. And um, and then right after she lost, um, he, Duterte then again appointed her to another position in, in the government um, that has to do with uh, overse-
0: overseas Filipino workers. And that's what she's doing now?
1: The, right now, that's what she's doing, yes. So she's part of or, the government again.
0: But th- that, is, uh, that takes her out of the big fight against Maria Oresa who she was really going after for a while? Or is she yeah, still no, attacking her on, on on Facebook?
1: Yeah, she still has a blog, right? So she's still um, attacking Maria. But what the difference is from even last year was a lot more people are defending Maria on social media. Um, that wasn't true when we were filming her last year. No one was defending Maria. Um, but a lot more are, even on um, MOCA's blogs, right? So... It's, uh, so something's happening, you know. The people are getting tired. The people, especially, I think COVID has really shown the um, the weaknesses of the administration. Um, you know, uh, the economy's taking. People have been in lockdown for so long, and you know, you mentioned earlier that uh, this has been in the Philippines. It actually, we actually screened it. Um, Uh, right before Maria was convicted of cyber libel on June 15th. So um, we decided really quickly to um, make it available for free for 24 hours before her verdict, just to raise awareness for her verdict. And we put it on the Frontline YouTube channel, and we thought, and oh, GeoBlock to the Philippines for free. And we did it, like, in two days. So we didn't even have, like, advance notice. We just put it out there in Viber chats and stuff. Um, and uh, Frontline said, okay, just expect like maybe 20,000 because that's our average um, traffic without with advanced notice already. So maybe even less than 20,000. I said, fine, I just want to raise awareness. Do something, right? Um, my God, 24 hours, Friday evening to Saturday evening, 233,000 full views. Wow. It was insane, and I was getting a lot of messages over the weekend from uh, strangers, complete strangers, you know, through my social media pages. That I, I expected anger, that I expected, but I didn't expect. I think the deep, deep sadness that people felt, because I, uh, we, you know, I mean, yeah.
0: No, I'm well, going to say we need to take a little break, uh, oh. and we'll come back to this and come back to. Uh, Maria Resa's situation and then some of the other things that you cover in your, in your film, including uh, the presence of Amal Clooney, George Clooney's wife. Uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Let's listen to a little bit of the Philippine National Anthem. We get back to my conversation with Ramona Estiaz, I'd like to take a few minutes to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us get back on our feet because this pandemic has made our financial situation really very difficult. Uh, we need everyone who tunes into London Located Lodge and is financially able to, to step up right now by going to our website, give2wbai.org or or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. That's give to WBAI, give the number two WBAI.org, 516-620-3602. Uh, And one great way to support BAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. They're they're listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. It it adds up uh, if you're doing $10 a month to $120 a year. it's, uh, It's great, but it's only $10 each time. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up right now to show your support so that we can continue to bring you these long form interviews on topics that often don't get enough attention, but that we hope will be of interest to you. So please be sure to make that contribution in the name of London Located Large. And, and big thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support the show and, and the station. We are, as uh, we have been telling you, a hundred percent reliant on the generosity of our listeners. We don't take ads or, uh, grants from anybody. We are just simply the people who call in and support us who keep us going. So if you haven't already, why not make that call now at 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org and sign up to become a BAI buddy today. And right now I want to get back to uh, my guest uh, talking about her film, which is called one thousand, uh, a thousand cuts. Ramona, as Diaz is the filmmaker, um, a thousand cuts because of the famous old uh, Chinese phrase.
1: Um, because of um, Maria, uh, she talks about a thousand cuts to uh, the the body of the uh, the body of um, democracy
0: in uh-huh. the country.
1: You know, so um, a thousand little cuts will bleed you out. That's what she says.
0: Yeah, one cut is not so bad, but when you get to 1,000, it's the same thing as one big thing that kills you. You were you were filming during the uh, Philippine midterm elections last year. Another key figure in the story is General Bato de la Rosa, a, uh, a former police chief who was then running for senator. Uh, is he Duterte's right-hand man?
1: He was Duterte—they go back a long way. They go back, at uh, you know, Davao days. He was also the police chief of Duterte in Davao. So when uh, Duterte became president, he made um, uh, De La Rosa—he appointed De La Rosa the head of the Philippine National Police. And so um, Bato De La Rosa was really the implementer of the drug war. That's when the numbers really rose. He was the first uh, PNP chief of uh, Duterte. Um, he left that post and became the head of the Bureau of Corrections, which is uh, um, the prison system, and then left that post to run for Senate. And uh, and then, of course, he won the seats with over 19 million votes. Uh, but he is, he's one of those, um, you know, when I said that uh, Duterte is very loyal to his friends, he's one, uh, uh, Bateau is one of those really close, close allies that they go back a long way, right, from Davao days
0: well if if uh, Duterte uh can be vulgar at times uh Bato can be extremely vulgar he come he's a scary guy to somebody i guess who who doesn't live in in the country uh and he, and he makes some of the most vulgar statements uh in his speeches he 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 comes across as a thug
1: pretty much yeah but it's also like uh, um, he he intrigues me because he's a, uh, and the, certainly I'm not a, an apologist for Bateau, right? But he, it's a combination of jester, so this clownish Bateau, and that menace, right? So he dances, he does karaoke, but he says, well, you know, and then he does his whole bit on the drug war and says, well, if you don't clap, you're a drug addict. So there is that, mm-hmm. right? there, there's a, right, there's a threat and in between dancing and karaoke, so I think it's really that sort of juxtaposition, the tension between being a jester and sort of clownish and being a menace like the head of the police is really scary. It's scarier in a way.
0: You mentioned that Maria Oressa was arrested for cyber libel in, in uh, February 2019. What does cyber libel mean in, in uh, Filipino law?
1: It is what it is. It's like a libel on the Internet. Basically. Was it
0: invented by Duterte's government?
1: A cyber libel, I think, has been there since the previous government. So it's, it's been a very um, controversial law. So they fought it all the way to the Supreme Court, which um, 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 uh, I, I think which threw it out. You know, I'm not too versed with the history of cyber libel, mm-hmm. but I believe it was the previous government that um, um, instigated the cyber libel law. So basically, she she was found guilty of um, uh, publishing an article about a private businessman who's also an ally of Duterte um, and um, uh, of libel. Right? She she it's an article that she did not write, and she actually didn't have she knew nothing about because she is the CEO. She she's not the everyday day to day. But they had. Um, they had written about this businessman and his um and his connections with a former supreme court um, official who was found guilty of corruption so um it was really uh, it, this is a thing with uh maria's cases right she has eight cases so this is only one of eight right but wait Just in this that- case
0: in this case wasn't she charged for that article which was published before the law was passed so it's being applied retroactively uh, did that uh, did anybody consider that during the trial or was the trial a, a sure thing she was going to be convicted no matter what
1: yeah but at the end of the day she was charged for republication so wow. uh, according to the um to the verdict they had to they republished basically because they changed a typo one typo for the court deemed it a republication. And because they repub- they republished, then it was within the time limit of... That, that was already when the, the law was implemented. But what what's not known or what falls through the cracks is that during that time, there was a temporary restraining order on the law. So it wasn't even in effect during republication because they were still contesting it, right? Um, so it's very... And this is a thing. This is a thing about... Her, her cases—they're very opaque in a way. They're very hard to understand, right? So, cyber libel. Like, you just ask me, what is cyber cyber libel? She has tax evasion. She has anti dummy. She has SEC. they're you know, if you accuse someone of sedition, it's easy, right? Oh, sedition. She went up against the power, right? She said something bad about the TRT. So you understand sedition. But because it is, they use all this cyber libel, tax evasion, anti-dummy. It's a very, very opaque narrative. And it helps because then you question, wait, didn't she pay her taxes? Wait, is she foreign-owned? Wait, did she libel someone? You know you know what I mean? So it makes you question... Um, what the real story is, but it's all it's all uh, trumped up charges. I don't mean to use the word Trump, but you know you know uh, what I mean. I it's-
0: understood. <laughs> it's okay. That's it's scary Trump to Trump use Trump. the word Trump in 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 any other context other than Donald. <laughs> but yes, I understand. Uh, yeah, so, have any yeah. of those cases come to trial?
1: They're all um, ongoing. Um, so the cyber libel one was the first one where the uh, where a verdict was handed down. Um, so she's fighting all the other seven. So there are three. There are, it falls under, there are seven, but it falls under three buckets, you know, because they breed all this, uh, all these legal cases. So under um, there's tax evasion. There are SEC charges, anti-dummy, which is like foreign owned, etc., And then cyber libel. And th- those three, like those three big cases sort of breed other cases. That's why she has eight cases in all.
0: And how much prison time could she ultimately face as a result of all of this? They really come after her.
1: Uh, all of it? Uh, cumulative? Like, um, close to 100 years in prison. No, no it's really, it's, it's something else. Like, when you think about it, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, yeah, close to 100 years.
0: Amal Clooney, George Clooney's wife, is one of her lawyers. Uh, is that because they want they want to bring some international attention to this case?
1: Yes. And, um, and I'm all offered. <laughs> so, um, I was actually, we were actually there when they first met, you know, um, uh, they have the trial watch. Uh, the Clooney foundation has uh, what they call the trial watch. They actually watch trials around the world that need watching that need, you know, a light shine, uh, shown upon them. Um, and they invited Maria to the launch and that's when she met the Clooney's and uh, basically, um, that's when that was when the um, uh, relationship was forged. Um, but yes, to to have um, international representation abroad because you know um, uh, I, I, it always helps, right? Because who knows what's going to happen. She has a very very uh, wonderful team um, in, in the Philippines. Uh, uh, she has a whole set of lawyers in the Philippines, but they they complement each other. I mean, because obviously Amal cannot practice in the Philippines. Um, So, yeah, it's uh, it's to make sure that she has representation abroad.
0: Has that international attention had any uh, impact? Have any countries uh, approached Duterte and said, uh, you really should not be doing this?
1: Not really, no. <laughs> I mean, it was so—like, sur- she is a dual citizen, right? She is Filipino-American. When she was convicted of cyber libel, um, this country was pretty silent. I mean, the State Department, I think, um, put out a statement, which is very tame. Um, certainly, uh, Trump did not, you know? Um, uh, so, not really, so, but I think it is to keep, by, by Amal representing her, the story um, The is kept alive, right? Like right before her verdict, Amal wrote a uh, Washington Post opinion piece. Um, so it, it, it's able to just keep it out, out there and, and the story alive. Otherwise, people will forget. There's so many things happening, Bill. You know, so much COVID that uh, she needs all the attention she can get.
0: Now, she began her career as a traditional journalist with CNN, which is a mainstream news outlet. Does she now see herself as an activist whose job has become not just reporting the news, but having to defend the freedom of the press?
1: Yes, I think so. But um, uh, she resisted that for a long, long time, as all journalists do, right? Because the role of journalism is to really just uh, call out power and make them accountable. Um, And they're really not any kind of voice of the opposition. She resisted that for a very long time, but she always says that she was unshackled when she was arrested, right? Because now she was the source. She knew it was a violation of her rights. And after she was arrested the first time, she found her voice to speak out. Now, is that activism? I suppose it is, right? Uh, when you start speaking, um, when you start speaking out about your rights and and the truth, you're also you're also having to say that the people who are in power are telling lies, right? Now, when you start saying that they're telling lies, is that activism? I don't know. It's just you know calling them out. They're saying no, it's not raining outside; it's sunny. It's a lie, right? But now you have to do that. You have to do that now. Um, So has a line—I don't know, maybe a line has been crossed? Uh, But I think she now embraces it. She actually says uh, more and more so that journalism is activism, because if it is a fight for truth and facts, then it has become activism.
0: What about your role in all of this? Uh, Obviously, people can't call what you have—the film you've made, fake news, because— You've captured their statements on film, but uh, are, are, do you see yourself as an activist in, in making a film of this sort?
1: You know, I, I do not. I don't see myself as an activist. I really see myself as um, I'm a filmmaker, right? So my my I'm not very prescriptive when it comes to messages because I think messages are very personal and really, you know, they depend about on your lived experience, really. But I I think my my role as a filmmaker is to give you an experience of what Maria Ressa has gone through this past year and a half. Right. And also, of course, open it up to context and um, and introduce it to other characters you would otherwise not meet, like Batoa and Mocha. And um, I include them in the film because I feel like everyone has a story to tell. I think it's more dangerous if we just dismiss them as pawns of the administration, right? Because they really believe in their own story as well. They're not, in their story, they're not anti-heroes, right? They're the heroes of their own narrative. So I, I want to know why. Um, but to me, that's my my role, right? Not, that you come to any message is great, right? Um, but my my main my main goal really is to give you an experience and to show you what's happening and to make you maybe understand a little bit of what this information is, right? What the, what does that look like on the ground and how does it affect someone personally?
0: Do you see this story as relevant to what's happening in the United States?
1: Yes, I didn't start out that way. I didn't mean to make it so relevant, let me tell you. I mean, I'm attracted to characters and stories on the ground. But as uh, you know, as we as we filmed it, it became very apparent to me that it would resonate in this country, and I think it does because uh, Duterte and Trump, I think, have a I don't know they're they're going off the same playbook, you know, um, uh, fake news, the weaponization of social media, and all that. It's very it, it's very familiar. And, you know, I go back. I go back between the Philippines and the U.S. And in the past, I've always known the difference, right? There's always been the difference between the U.S. and the Philippines. But once I sit here and watch – you know, I watch television and I see journalists being, like, um, targeted in the protests or CNN reporters being – arrested on live television, I question it. I do a double take, I'm like, where am I, you know? Um, so it's really, yeah, I, th- I, I think the stories are very similar. And that's why I think they're resonating with an audience here. I mean, we're out in like 60 theaters this weekend. <laughs> um, so something, something is resonating.
0: Um, I wanna to get to that in a moment, but um, I wanna to return to the, the film you made about Imelda. Which you seem to uh, have some mixed feelings about. But, but didn't Imelda sue you over it? What happened?
1: Yes. Um, so um, I did um, Imelda, which, you know, I spent a long time with her, just like with Maria. We were with her for like two years, not every day, of course, but over this course of two years. And I, I did, uh, it was a bio piece on Imelda. And we premiered at Sundance and right before Sundance, I showed it to her as a courtesy, like I always do everyone I film. And she had some few problems, and, but we talked about it. I said, well, Mrs. Marcus, it is a courtesy. Uh, you know, um, uh, she didn't have editorial control, of course. And then she let it go. She goes, you know, whatever, you know, it's okay with me, it's fine. So we premiered at Sundance in January. And then six months later, we were in theaters uh, we were at the Film Forum, actually, in New York, and, um, uh, and had this theatrical release in the U.S. And the major newspapers reviewed it, and they called her a pariah and delusional and all mm-hmm. these things. That, and suddenly she saw herself through the eyes of the reviewers, and she did not like it. And so she sued us in the Philippines, because we were trying to, we we were releasing in the Philippines as well, theatrically, that was the very first documentary released theatrically in the Philippines. And they said that she was gonna try it, that if she won there, then she would come after us in the US, but um, uh, she accused us of sullying her good name and invasion of privacy. Well, she's a public figure. So invasion of privacy was thrown out. And we were actually, and she did sign a release form, actually. Um, but And we were in her bedroom and everywhere in her car, you know, with a big camera. So it wasn't a hidden camera. She knew exactly what um, she was getting into. And so it was thrown out, you know. Um, but uh, w- what happened was, you know, it was a, this story in in the entertainment pages of the dailies, right, in Manila small story but because she oh my god she had a press conference every day leading up to the trial every day so what you know what was a small story in the back pages migrated to the front page suddenly it was we were like big news right and so it helped us an opening weekend, we beat, I think, Superman 2 or something. We beat one of <laughs> the simple films in, in the Capitol. And then, of course, then we were accused maybe that maybe we, she was, you know, we were of collusion, right? That she was helping us <laughs> try to make it a hit because she wanted it. To be.
0: Now, this <laughs> film... Her name was
1: on it, which, of course, we were not. It was very, very stressful to, to appear in court <laughs> with Mrs. Marcos.
0: This is uh, another one of your films is Motherland about a maternity ward in a Manila hospital. Uh, so you t- tend to focus on the Philippines. Uh, a Thousand Cuts premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. It's been shown at major film festivals, won awards, has, but it won't be shown in the Philippines, I imagine. Are you worried about your ability to work there in the future?
1: Uh, um, maybe until 2022, <laughs> until the elections. Uh, We'll see beyond that, right? I hope there are elections in 2022, um, but you know it's early days.
0: So, so how can people see it now? It's being it's opening in virtual release today. How can my listeners see it? If they go on the website
1: um, a thousand dot film, they will see on there a list of theaters across the nation. There are links. They can click on the link of a theater of their choice. So say, um, whatever theater you want to support, they're mostly art houses. You click on that link and you can buy a ticket to it from that theater and you can watch it at home. And I think you're given 48 hours to watch it.
0: And if, that, if you want to see it free and you're willing to wait till February, it's going to be shown on Frontline on PBS, right? it's been such a great pleasure talking with you.
1: This is great, and thank good l- you for having me.
0: Good luck with the film. Ramona S. Diaz, her film, A Thousand Cuts. And uh, that, uh, unfortunately, uh, we have to leave her because uh, uh, we've run out of time. That brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview, and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and our executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the amazing work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to our show and like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at, at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And uh, you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, com. And if there's anything you'd like to talk to me about, tell me about, uh, just uh, or just to say hello, you can email me at at org. Before I sign off today, a reminder, We hope that you will become a supporter of the station, 516-620-3602, or go to give2wbai.org. Have a great weekend. On Monday, Tom Filipot will discuss his latest book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It.